0: Welcome back, dear listeners, to the Dish with Dina podcast. I'm so happy to have you join us for another episode. Today, my guest is Susan Jure. Susan and I dish about family recipes, fueling, and following our dreams. Susan is an avid runner and registered dietitian who loves learning about food and nutrition modifications to improve athletic performance and recovery. So sit back, enjoy the conversation, and let's dish. Welcome, Susan, to the Dish with Dina podcast. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you, Dina. It's great to be here.
0: I am very new at this podcasting stuff, and I'm very grateful that you and I had a connection on Instagram. I believe that is where you also saw my kind of calling out to anybody who was following me, if you'd be interested on coming in, in and doing an interview with me. So I'm very grateful to have you as one of the first few guests on this podcast. And I'm excited to kind of see where it takes us in this direction. Um, as I was looking in your bio, the one that you sent me about uh, your interests and in things that you're doing right now, we're going, we're going to go over a little bit uh, about that shortly. But I sometimes I, I have a lot of things in common with people. And in your case, I don't, which is nice because I want to learn more about what you do. So I'm excited to learn about all these things that you have going on and things that you're interested in. Uh, So can we start off by first saying where, how, how we met, how do we know each other?
1: Yes. So like you mentioned, we met on Instagram um, and we have like friends and fellow dietitians in in common that we know. Um, And it's just that I find that social some, some, sometimes social media is, is a great place to meet other dietitians or soon-to-be dietitians and to um, share common interests or learn more, learn new things about them and then just help like our D2Bs moving forward. Um, it's like, it's great to be part of a dietitian community and to learn from each other and share interests.
0: I love it too. I often joke that we are from the future. I don't think, you know, 30 years ago or maybe even 10, 15 years ago, there was this much involvement with complete strangers. And yeah. and then not even just strangers but people who are so willing to want to share their passions, their pursuits, their interests with each other and be so supportive of each other as well, which is You know, especially in this day and age where everybody's on their go, on the go, and uh, sometimes don't necessarily have time to take out for each other, it's nice to stop and kind of learn a little bit about people in your field or, like I said before, complete strangers on the internet that just happen to cross paths. So tell me a little bit, since the kind of the message of the theme of the podcast is really to start off with understanding cultural backgrounds, food histories, how people grew up, and then finding kind of the path of where things led you whether or not it was positive or negatively influenced and how you know you are to where you are now so do you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit of either your earliest food memories what your cultural background is how you know how your your family dynamic any of that
1: yes, um, so um, my family is from Tajikistan it's a country in Central Asia and growing up uh, we were all we all grew up learning how to cook maybe like from the age of like six, um, and everything was around food. It was how we stayed connected and shared like family memories. Um, my grandmother would teach us, my mom, like it was, it was just like a rite of passage, so to speak. Um, and it definitely influences uh, a lot of my passion for nutrition, because in the beginning, I didn't really think of nutrition as a career. But then once I became interested in it, everything just kind of sort of came to place um, with that, with the passion of cooking and food that I have. And it's just a way that our family stayed connected and they have recipes that were passed down for generations. And um, knowing what I know now as a dietitian, I definitely um, have changed some recipes or like tweaked them a bit, but more or less um, we've kept mm-hmm. them the same just to keep the memories alive. Um, and then just like sort of eat smaller portions because foods tend to be higher in fat or salt or, um, like as traditional foods uh, sort of are. And, um, it's just great to keep memory alive and to, um, share these recipes.
0: Did your family, how did they pass that down? Was it through oral history? Did you guys have an actual like recipe book or did somebody compile it all?
1: There's actually, like, no recipe book. It's just passed down based, like, from cooking, like like I mentioned, because we, we learned how to cook from, like, the age of six. Mm-hmm. So my grandmother would teach um, my mom, and then my mom would teach us, and my grandmother would also teach us. Um, and then we just, like, pass it down from generation to generation, and that's how it's sort of been, like, and every, the recipes have stayed the same, like, till this day.
0: I love oh, that. So yeah. you're still finding the ingredients and the flavors and yeah, not only definitely. are they modernized in that way, but also they kind of bring you back in time being like, oh my gosh, this is three generations or more worth of cooking the same kind of food. Yeah. I love that. It I, I was asked. keeps us connected. And, yeah. um... Is everyone in that lineage still alive to kind of see all of this happen? Or are you, you know, kind of uh, bringing this up into the new generation of where you're, you're at now?
1: Um, So my grandmother recently passed, but what we do now is like cook a lot of her recipes um, in memory and honor of her Mm -hmm. and celebrate it um, and just try to like we keep her memory alive sort of through cooking and um, sharing these recipes
0: like together. I love that. Are they intricate in the sense of my understanding, I believe, when it comes to that part of the world is there's a lot of flavors, a lot of components, a lot of ingredients that go in. But is it also very time consuming? And have you modernized any recipes aside from the, I guess, the um, cooking method? Have you modernized anything versus, you know, hand stirring something and instead placing it in a food processor?
1: Yeah, definitely we have modernized it. Like <laughs> I definitely use the food processor processor a lot. Um, but most of the time I usually like, like if it, we have like these kind of sort of dumplings that we like fill with like meat or sometimes if a vegetarian one, like me and my mom made a vegetarian one with like um, butternut squash instead of meat. So we try to like make adaptations and still yeah. have sort of the same spices uh, along the same. And then like, um and different modernization, so sometimes we like bake certain um dishes instead of like um put it cooking it cooking it on the stove um and yeah, but more or less the recipe still stays the same, but the tools and cooking methods um sometimes are um moderated
0: more yeah, like right yeah. And I think one of the things I teach, I'm an adjunct lecturer, one of my undergrad classes, I might have mentioned this to you, is uh, food society and health. And we go through the whole world and kind of learn a little bit about the regional things that they, the traditions, the cultures and the regional things that they do. But even in the different food ways and the different recipes and the different flavors, there's always something that is similar in every culture, whether it be something like you said, a dumpling. So in your case, it's a dumpling. In my case, being Italian, it's probably a ravioli, right? It's a meat stuffed, or I should say it's a dough stuffed with something in it, cheese or meat or whatever. And then as far as uh, meal etiquette and preparations go, was, was there anything specific when you would sit down to these holidays and gatherings and feasts that you would have, was there anything that you had to kind of abide by who ate first or, you know, who, who ladled out the most amount of food for each other, or did you all kind of just come sit down and it was a family style who, you know, grab whatever you want to eat.
1: Um, so the way it typically works for us is um, usually we like played everything on the table already. Um, and typically the elders um, mm-hmm. are served first because uh, respect is a big factor in, in our culture, um, and usu- the elders usually eat, like, are served first, and, but everything's on the table. We don't have, like, things coming and going. It's usually you put everything on the table, and uh, everyone, like, eats at the same time.
0: Right. And that's something that I think we were learning as well in that class is that there is some sort of hierarchy in the social settings and the familial settings that you do honor and respect your elders and whoever else was you know, cooking might also play a role in that too. Like maybe they get to eat first or maybe they get to eat last, depending on what the culture entails. So I always find these things really interesting. The family style component, I think I resonates with me too. I remember Sunday dinners, just huge amounts of everything, pasta and bread and uh, different kinds of other, I think, meats and side dishes and vegetables just all over the table. And we would have, you know, the large dining room table and then right next to it, a smaller table for the kids. And it was exactly like you were saying, just everything was right there. You can get up, you can go for seconds. And it was just the, the enticing aromas. And that's something that I often think back fondly of and I wish kind of we still had those things today I mean like you were saying it sounds like you're still engaging in that you still have a large gathering or at least you're trying to honor the recipe making
1: yeah so typically um once a week like Friday night uh we usually do like family dinners like that and mostly like on holidays but throughout the week because everyone works everyone Mm -hmm. has different schedules and um it, it gets a bit crazy so like one, like right before the weekend, like Friday night, we do that. Um, and holidays we sit down and it's just like a way to connect and Mm -hmm. celebrate with the family.
0: I love it. So take us now into kind of what brought you into, I guess, either the career you're in right now or how you navigated from being a child growing up and where you have followed the pursuits of leading you into the dietetics world.
1: Um, so I became interested in nutrition um, after my sister um, was diagnosed with type 2 di- type 2 diabetes. I started researching different ways to help her and um, ways to like keep her carbohydrate consistent and try to like teach her like different healthy um, habits and exercise routines so then I then I thought okay, why don't I just take a nutrition um, introduction to nutrition course. So I was hun- I was at Hunter at the time. So I took the course. And after the first class, I just fell in love with it. I, I knew from that moment that um, that's the career that I wanted to pursue. Um, so I stayed at Hunter, got my master's in nutrition. And then I went to the internship and got my RD. And now I'm working as a clinical dietitian um, with goals of getting um, diabetes education certification certificate um, because it's definitely something that i'm interested in and there's so many people out there with type 2 diabetes who need guidance and help and that's one of my goals as a dietitian is to help them
0: so what started out with you helping a family member and just trying to educate yourself in something that you had no idea or maybe not a lot of information on specifically for her condition and now this is I always say there's no such thing as coincidence. There's a reason why things happen that led you in that direction. And what I've also been finding too, in some of the other people that I've been speaking to is that our, we have a job, but we also have a career. And it sounds like you are also involved in pursuing things to help you grow and expand and be of service in that way to a particular population, but in a more specialized way than having just say the typical standard registered dietitian uh, credential after your name. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means, what the CDE is and what that entails as if anybody else wants to obtain being a certified diabetes educator?
1: Yeah, sure. So the CDE is a certif- is to become like a certified diabetes educator. So what you would need to do is you would have to be a dietitian um, for two years um and during the last six months of the second year you would have to obtain uh like a like a thousand hours not like during but they said most of the hours should be like within the last Mm -hmm. six months before you need to take the exam but you have like the two years I guess to do the bulk of the thousand hours and then you would have to take a standardized exam and it entails like nutrition but not only nutrition also like um, different medications, the biological pathways of uh, mechanisms of how diabetes works, how it affects the body. Um, so, what I've heard from uh, other dietitians is that the exam is kind of hard. But I feel like the, the, a lot of them say the nutrition part, obviously, for dietitians, is easier. But a lot of them were struggling with the um, pharmacological and um, because there's like new medications out every single year; they come out with different ones. So staying up to date with those, staying up to date with everything that's new in the field, new research, um, and applying that when you're studying.
0: I think this is really interesting because this goes along with what I was saying before about expanding on our careers and specializing in something, especially if you know that you're either interested in working with a specific chronic condition, or you are more geared towards a certain population, be it pediatrics or people with diabetes or whatever you have, and then getting specialized in that. So that's really where it starts kind of drilling down. And that's also where you you can't really expect, I don't think, us as going through what we went through in our academic pursuits of knowing all of these ins and outs. So there's the hands-on component, as you said, right? There's the thousand hours of actually having worked with people with diabetes. And then you still have to have the two years under your belt as or more of being a dietitian. So if somebody has worked with somebody in uh, an outpatient setting or a clinical setting, and they go to, they want to pursue the CDE, they should get on ASAP. Otherwise those thousand hours can run out pretty quickly. How, uh, what are you doing right now to kind of ensure your position when you're ready to take that exam?
1: So right now, when I started my first job, it was, uh, when the coronavirus started. So my hours have been, I, so I was a clinical, um, dietitian, uh, in the ICU setting. So I covered the medical and surgical ICU. So a lot of the patients I'm seeing are, not diabetic so it's so I've been putting that on a pause and so most of the hours that I've been doing now is to um, treat COVID patients mm-hmm. um, but later as this um, hopefully um, decreases of the amount of patients that are with COVID and the admits um, I'll be put in like a med surge unit and then um, I'll see like uh, diabetes patients because a lot of the times you can't educate um, patients who are COVID it's hard because there's not enough PPE Um, so I've been putting that like as a pause for now, but later, um, hopefully I will be able to resume and see, um, more diabetes patients with med surge units.
0: Yeah. So for obviously anybody listening, I'm not entirely sure of how I'm going to be scheduling these podcasts to be published out because I think I mentioned to you, Susan, that I want to make sure that there's not too many back-to-back and repetitive um, guests that we have on. So I'm trying to collect a lot of interviews first, but the point that I'm trying to make is that we are in the uh, throes of a pandemic right now, and that seems to be throwing a lot of people off of their normal daily life. Uh, So hopefully, yes, once this does wind down, then we can continue forth with our pursuits and our goals because we are so focused on just making sure whatever's happening right now is happening. What was a day in the life of you previously, did you have a particular clientele that you met with or, you know, whatever your, your routine was, can you share a little bit about that as well? Um,
1: So actually, like before this all happened, like this was, this clinical job was actually my first job, but prior to this, um, uh, I'm a runner and I ran the marathon in 2018 in New York City, and uh, that actually piqued my interest in sports nutrition as well, so I was doing that I was interested in and I am still interested in that and obtaining like, um, my CSSD it's a certified specialist in sports dietetics as well. Mm -hmm. And what I was doing is I was like helping. So I was part of a running group and I was actually seeing a lot of the runners, um, for, um, nutrition counseling and like on the side, um, and trying to help them with their fueling strategies for marathon training. Um, and it definitely, those are like one of the top two things that I'm really, really interested in. And that's the one thing that I love about nutrition is that it's vast and you could have interest in so many things in nutrition specifically. And you don't have to stay like in one sort of specialty or one sort of interest, you could branch out and have many like goals, so to speak. Yeah, this one field.
0: I was uh, going to say that too, in that it's very vast, the amount of stuff that we can do, whether it is clinical or whether, again, there's population-specific stuff that we can work on or uh, chronic condition-specific stuff. But to have what your pursuits are, right? You're doing the CDE, the diabetics education. You're in clinical currently. And then you also have the nu- the, nu- the sports nutrition aspect. That's many different hats. Like I'm assuming there might be some crossover just in the general way of understanding nutrition. But my mind immediately goes to, you know, carb counting and being consistent with carbohydrates versus carb loading if you're doing running and endurance training in that respect. So how, how do you switch between all those things? Or is it just, you know, you kind of compartmentalize? Or do you see any crossover that, in other words, strengthens you uh, in, in whatever aspect of when you're moving in one population to the next? So if I'm working with sports people, it's one hat I'm wearing. If I'm working with people with diabetes, it's another hat I'm wearing.
1: I think they both uh, connect in certain ways because athletes are people as well, and they might have chronic <laughs> conditions. Some people, some athletes have type 1 diabetes, some athletes might have type, like they have, like there are athletes with chronic conditions and having the medical nutrition therapy base and understanding the different properties and how to treat them first and then going into how they fuel with that condition is is really important, I think, and having that Um, to like finding ways to connect them sometimes I guess there are going to be athletes who are healthy and don't need a medical nutrition therapy but there's definitely like some things that interconnect I think between them
0: yeah. And when, you, if you're talking about the sports dietetics field, that would be obviously another credential or another certification that you're having under your belt. What is the difference there? What are things like you had mentioned before with the CDE? You're talking about nutrition, obviously, but you're also talking about medications and bio pathways. What is the specialty focus in the sports dietetics? What do you need to know or focus in on when you're going for that exam or when you're going for that certification?
1: Certification. Um, so the certification is called the CSSD. It's um, Certified Specialist in Sports Dietetics. Um, so to have it, you to become eligible to have it, you need to be an RD for a minimum of two years, um, have 2000 hours of sports dietetics practice experience um, as an RD within the past five years. And then you need to recertify, like all these certifications have recertifications as well, but specifically for this one. So the CDE I found is that you only have, you only can do a thousand hours um, one-on-one counseling with patients, um, whether inpatient outpatient setting but specifically for sports dietetics, there's other things that qualify as hours. So you could write a research paper on sports nutrition, and that would count as certain hours, there's certain um, uh, um like a master's in nutrition would count as 300 hours, um, a master's in exercise science would count as um, I, I don't know the exact yeah. hours. But I think it's a doctorate degree is 400 hours. Um, but there's different um, things that you can do. Like if you're maybe like write a book. It's a uh, certain hours. There's different things that you could do to gain more hours as opposed to with the CDE. It's mm-hmm. strictly like a thousand hours, one-on-one. It's...
0: See, I actually think I like the CSSD approach because it feels a little bit more liberal, but it yeah. also feels like you get a lot more than just sitting and doing one-on-one because that really isn't the whole, that's not the end all be all when you're working in diabetic you know, situations. So I actually think that's kind of cool. It reminds, as you were reading that off, it was reminding me a little bit of in the dietetics world, we have to keep up with our continuing education units, like the activity logs that we have to do every five years. And they do give you the option of doing a bunch of different things. Like you could have read a journal article or you could have gone to school or you could have been working in something in research. And so that, that feels a lot more flexible, which I think is also making the dietician a very well-rounded person to understand a little bit more in, than just the one-on-one counseling components on that. Yeah, That's definitely. very cool. I'm really excited for wh- what I hope is, it sounds like a lot on your plate at some point, but you know, hopefully not everything's going to happen at the same time. Like maybe you'll have some breathing room from one certification to the other. I hope.
1: Yeah. yeah I don't, I don't like foresee getting these like in the next two years. These are like I would say these are my long-term goals and and, uh, just like something that I strive to get Um, and if uh, hopefully it happens because now things have been put on pause and I'm just taking it a day at a time Um, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely like something I look forward to obtaining.
0: Can you talk a little bit about for people who don't know what the term fueling means? Now, we, you know, we started the conversation of how we all grow up and we might have different backgrounds. And you also brought up that working with people in sports or, you know, any kind of athletic world there that obviously they might also have underlying chronic conditions or they might be generally healthy, but what's, what's the fueling component? What is it that, that means and who is it for?
1: Um, so fueling in terms of like sports nutrition, um, there's, uh, like, there's the different types of foods and, uh, like ratios of carbohydrates and protein that you're, um, supposed to eat like, like pre, um, exercise during and post. Um, so let's say I would say like for an example, a marathon, let's say you're running the marathon, um, Like if you're running less than 45 minutes, you don't need to fuel because your body has enough glycogen stores to fuel that um, exercise. But if you're running for one to two and a half hours, um, you have to fuel with um, 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour. So after every hour, you would eat like 30 grams of carbs, which would translate into like one gel. Like gels are typically ranging between like 25 to 30 grams of carbohydrates. Um, Um... And then after you would drink or you could drink like Gatorade because sometimes the Mm -hmm. races have Gatorade on the, on the running route, um, which would be like, I guess, three quarters of a 20 ounce bottle of Gatorade. But I guess those cups would like, they fill the cups up like three quarters of the way up on the races. So that would be adequate. And then I would like tell people to like drink some water after that because it's highly concentrated and sugar. Um, And then um, after you would drink, I mean, you would eat one to 1.5 grams of carbs per kilogram of body weight 30 minutes after you exercise for two hour intervals. Um, And then um, the protein needs would vary based on the person. So typically what I would tell like runners is 15 to 25 grams of protein to repair muscle damage and stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Um, I would give them like a tip to give like a two to one carbohydrate to protein ratio 15 to 30 minutes after their workout to ensure that they're repairing their muscle damage during the workout. So an example would be like an RX bar, like a power Mm -hmm. bar given after the races, they typically have like a two to one carbohydrate to protein ratio and hydration would be like before would be two cups of water two to three hours before workout and then during would be like three to eight ounces of water every 15 to 20 minutes if you're exercising less than an hour, but three to eight ounces of carbohydrates like an electrolyte sports drinks every 15 to 20 minutes whenever you're exercising more than one hour. So sometimes people drink Gatorade after not exercising for more than an hour and yes. that's not what you're supposed to do because... These sports drinks were formulated specifically to replenish um, electrolytes that are lost in sweat and to replenish Mm -hmm. your glycogen stores. So that happens after an hour and you need to replenish it. Like if you're exercising less than an hour, it's not necessary. Um, Water will be fine. Like water is enough. Like just stick with water if your exercise lasts less than an hour. That would be my recommendation. You don't need that
0: extra sugar.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's really concentrated in sugar, and uh, um, it's not necessary unless it's after, like, 60 minutes of exercise.
0: Right. And I'm assuming intense exercising, too, and where that you are sweating quite significantly and you have to replenish those stores. You said something about gels. Is that, like, a travel pouch that you open up while you're out and about, like you have them somewhere tucked into a shirt or, like, a fanny pack or something?
1: Yeah, so these gels are, like, these, like, small packets of, like, goo or it's like Mm -hmm. they have like very different ones it's just like carbohydrates um like a lot of the times their base is glucose um and you just it's like I think like the most I've seen it's like 30-ish it ranges in 25 to 30-ish grams of carbohydrates and it's just Mm -hmm. like this like I wouldn't say jelly consistency but it's like a smooth like thing that you could just you just rip off the top and you just like squeeze it into your mouth and just like take a sip of water after and then just keep running some I've seen runners like eat it as they're still running Mm -hmm. I I usually stop I can't do that at the same time um but uh it's like just an instant um glucose that you could take a lot of times some people eat like half of a banana I see like people eating bananas during the race Mm -hmm. um but yeah, they, they make it like easier and you could keep them like a lot of runners wear running belts to keep them there. Um, a lot of times people don't use gel so they could eat like now in the market, they have like jelly beans. They have, uh, these chews where it's just like, it's like candy chews. A lot of times people just take like random like candies or snacks. It's like, I would say everything in sports nutrition is based on the individual. It's Mm -hmm. what your body can tolerate. I definitely had to go through a lot of different gels and chews and things that um, during my training when I was training for the marathon, I had to like test out very different ones um, until I found the perfect one for me. So what I was using was Huma gel. It has like, uh, it uses um, fruit fruit purees and chia seeds. So I thought that, and some of them have like electrolytes added to the gels that I would use during like when I was running like 20 miles during my training and it would be like more than two hours that Mm -hmm. I was running. So I would use those to replenish it because Gatorade, I found Gatorade does not suit me. Well, it doesn't like my body can't tolerate it. And it's based on, it's definitely based on the individual. It's based on um, what you can, that's why, like the one thing that I would say is to, to my clients would be to test out different products and do it while you're training and while you're training, um, before, like, don't ever use, like, a, a new product when you're doing a race or, like, a marathon, because you never know what's going to happen.
0: This is so interesting, because we are taught in our schooling, just general dietetics, we learn about macronutrients, we learn about the percentages of your daily intake, and what that means as far as carbohydrates and proteins and fats, just as being a normal, healthy adult. And the guidelines that we're given for there is you know, pretty standard. And then, of course, we sometimes make adjustments depending on chronic conditions, if you have a respiratory issue, or if there are rare diseases, or inborn errors of metabolism, and those types of things that we can kind of adjust for. Stress issues, physical activity issues as well that we adjust for that. But this sounds like a lot of really intense calculations that you kind of need to know, like you said, starting off where you're going, how intense of an athlete you are, or how intense your workout is going to be, and then building up and testing all these different things out and these different ratios that would, I guess, make you repair, obviously, whatever is the muscle tears and things that are going on there, but also replenish anything that you're losing. So I I was laughing when you said the thing about Gatorade, because I I actually use that as an example in one of my classes that, you know, it's one thing to be uh, during the childhood Uh, life cycle stage. I think we usually bring up like when kids start joining, you know, soccer leagues and things like that, that they might need to replenish some of those stores with Gatorade, but you don't necessarily need it if you're just going around the block. And that's like, you're sucking on a bottle of that to replenish yourself because there's a purpose for it. And uh, that, that sounds, it's just such an interesting, I guess, you know, channel of dietetics that I'm not very familiar with, but you've explained it very well. Is that true? Is it like a lot of calculations depending on who you're working with or what sports team or what you know type of a- athletic uh, activity you're doing in that way? Yeah, it yeah. definitely
1: changes. So this was specifically for runners and uh, more endurance sports and other athletes who focus on strength training, like boxing, stuff like that would have different um, carbohydrates and protein requirements and um, like, needs than compared to runners, because you're not using more, you're not using glycogen stores, Your they would have higher protein needs compared to endurance runners.
0: Right. And so in the world of sports dietetics, do you think that it makes sense for personal trainers, and I guess coaches or whatever to either be certified themselves as, or maybe even go back to school or to bring in a dietitian and have somebody who specializes in dietetics and say, this is kind of our team member, you know, I'll handle the coaching, I'll handle the training and you handle the food combos.
1: Would definitely be important for them to get a specialist and a dietitian who actually studies nutrition and knows what they're talking about, as opposed to just recommending specific diets like sometimes i see a lot of the times they don't have dietitians in gyms um and then their coaches are just um recommending diets that eliminate certain food groups and are very restricting and that's very bad especially if somebody's um exercising so intensely and um needing extra needs from protein and carbohydrates so it would be very important for them to have a specialist or to gain
0: RD credentials themselves. I agree. I, I had a pot, my little pilot episode talked about kind of how we are often overlooked as a profession and so many people can tap into us. But I think that also helps us on this end empower ourselves to pitch ourselves in that way of saying, I'm here to support and be of service to your already existing clientele. Please utilize me in this way because I have this background as well. Oh my gosh, Susan, this is such a great amount of information. Um, if you don't mind, I want to just switch off for a second before we start wrapping up of kind of maybe a little bit more about what you were talking about with your, your go-to resources. Like where do you usually, I like asking people, where do you usually go to learn about what you're doing? And are you involved in, you know, conferences or groups, membership groups um, anything that you want to share, in case there are people who are listening who are looking to get into this, or you know, found your conversation interesting, and uh, where they can possibly go to as well to learn a little bit more about this stuff.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, so I'm the I'm a member of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and they have certain DPG groups. So I became uh, a member of the Sports uh, Dietetics uh, DPG group, and they have uh, this serve where sports dietitians ask questions and uh, like share different resources, uh, different like ways to communicate with patients and ha- like, sometimes they have like really hard questions that a dietitian's asking for other dietitians for advice and how to approach it, which I find uh, it's very helpful to read just w- in case like I would come up with a patient like that. Um, and since I'm in the clinical field, I didn't um, like, choose like the DPG for diabetes, cause I'm um, in the field and I see, and I would mm-hmm. in the future see like more patients with diabetes, but I, I read a lot of um, papers on diabetes. So I stay with up to date with the research that's um, specifically with uh, diabetes management with nutrition. Um, and it's great to relay that information if, and it's, it's great to be up to date with any research in the field because a lot of the times even if you're treating the patient, the patient's family might come up to you and ask for, like, I, my recommendations on certain diets. Like, I've had patients ask me about, mm-hmm. like, ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting, and it's great to be up to date with the research to give them um, the pros and cons about these diets so that they would be um, informed about what to do before they do it.
0: I agree with that. So even if you're specializing in something, still pay attention to what's new in the world out there, what people are buzzing about, fad stuff or not so fad stuff, and keeping abreast of all that that stuff too. So just for anybody who's listening, the DPG is a dietetic practice group. And I believe Susan, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You belong to scan the sports cardiovascular. Yes. Cardiovascular wellness nutrition. That's a really cool one too. So for people who are interested, I mean, they have a website, all of these dietetic practice groups have websites that are accessible to the general public. If you are a dietitian, you don't necessarily have to be a part of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. But when you are a member there, they have these subgroups that you can belong to as well. That, you know, of course, you got to throw a couple of bucks for your membership dues in that respect. But the general public can also look at these things or dietitians coming up, as we were saying before, RDS to be, registered dietitians who are on their way up, who might not yet know what they want to specialize in, but they can go online and check some of these things out and see what you know, might be, maybe piques their interest in that way. So we talked a little bit about the future you, which could be the long-term future you, but the current future you, what is on your plate today? What are you working on quite literally this, this day, this week, and whether it's personal or work-related, and then tell me a little bit too about what your next meal is going to entail. Cause I love talking about food.
1: Um. So now I'm just like currently, um, a clinical dietitian working, um, but like on the side. So I might teach uh, the introduction to nutrition course at Hunter. So I'm preparing the presentations um, now for the fall. Um, And then like next meal would probably be like, A quinoa salad I was making that before this
0: (laughs) was happening nice that sounds yummy well Susan it has been a pleasure talking with you but before we officially wrap up is there anything that you want to share to anybody that you think you have in mind um, that we haven't necessarily covered is there anything that I missed asking you
1: no I think that's great but if anyone wants to like connect with me on Instagram or like Um, different social medias and want to learn more, I would be happy to help anyone or any soon to be RDs with any questions.
0: Awesome. And this is your Instagram handle. Tell me again, it's Um, run run on nutrition.
1: Yeah, at run on nutrition, but it's at run underscore on underscore nutrition.
0: I'm going to put that in the little show notes slash description underneath the episode as well so people can find you. Well, thank you again for your time and for being one, as I said, one of the very first people that I've been interviewing. I'm excited to share your journey with whoever out there is interested in learning about these things because I really do feel like we have, even though a lot of the interviewed guests are going to be dietitians, you all have such varied backgrounds and different uh, professions different careers that you're working in right now within the profession I should say so thank you so much for taking the time to share with us uh, and I, I wish you a wonderful rest of the day
1: thank you so much for having me it's been great speaking with you
0: god thanks Susan okay bye-bye Bye. thank you so much for joining me this week on the Dish with Dina podcast I am Dina D'Alessandro Registered dietitian, nutritionist, founder, and chief executive life changer at Dish with Dina, and I'm also your host. If you like what you heard, I would be so grateful if you could subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and share this with others who you think might benefit from what we have to offer on these episodes. You can also join my mailing list at dishwithdina.com or email me at info at dishwithdina.com with questions comments, feedback, and if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode because everybody eats and we all have a story to share. I hope you tune back in next week when we dish again.